Uh, welcome to this special session of the, the Terrific, uh, the first Reside. session of the 168th session, coming uh, over the 167th. Uh, a warm welcome to our guest chair, uh, Professor David Finnemore. This house would remain in the EU, so we're going for kind of a status quo motion. But uh, before we do that, I think I'll introduce the 168th session, uh, beginning with, I think it goes Treasurer. So Treasurer first, he's not actually here, uh, Mr. Jeremy Miller, who uh, will manage our books with a, uh, a German efficiency. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, our secretary, our current secretary and continuing secretary, Mr. Comrade Robert Whitehurst. Our external, who is now my successor, Mr. Andrew Hannon, who is also not here but around the room. Our internal leaders, Ms. Liliana Better, who also incidentally is not here. Which is Mr. Andrew Dillon, who is here. Yes. And then it's open representative, which is Mr. Dr. Spray Miller, and then the FSC will go on at the And finally, we have second year rep, which is, I think, Mr. Dun 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 Dun, who isn't here. But upon the Who is also our technology officer, who is here and also stood in at the very, 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 very last minute to do, to do opposition. So we've all done. President's questions for all. Any questions for me? Any questions at all? Anyone at all? Anyone? Anyone? I don't want to break that up. Madam President, <laughs> what did you eat for breakfast this morning? presidents in the room, it's like when you, you get introduced to your girlfriend's like extended family and they're all waiting for you to make an absolute tip. Well, they did it! Right, any other questions at all before we move on? Private members of business? Yes, Mr. Calvin Black. You just mentioned that there are three former presidents in the room, so I'm doing yourself things. Four presidents, so can we please, please, please have a Good evening, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Show them what you can afford. You can read this thing. That's a final conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> 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 if somebody gives me more wine, I happily will. Yeah. <laughs> 
Fort! Give me the help back. I'm sorry, Professor. I didn't see the open. Fred, do you want to go first or shall I? Or do you want to go first or? Good evening, good evening, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. He's going to wait anyway. Humor him, humor him. Shall I go first? Assalamu alaikum, Ustad, Rahis, and um, uh, okay, my Arabic comes out again. I'm used to that. That was your Scott. Good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening, good evening. Uh, good evening. Uh, so, yeah, uh, who will be an arbitrary judge for that impromptu competition? <laughs> His dress has more chance of winning the presidency than Donald Trump. Controversial. <laughs> Does anyone want to come back on that comment or raise another comment? Or shall we move on to something huh? equally controversial? That dress is interesting her comment. <laughs> no, that's her wardrobe. Anyone else? Any other motions? No, no, no. That's good. Yes, you, Mr. Um, I would like to propose that this house resolves no one else should die this year. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I, I was allowed an opinion on this <laughs> within the constraints of reason, but anyone want to rebut that or address that? Proposal amendment. Amendment. That amendment, Mr. Rogers. Yes, I should send Steph to death. Oh. <laughs> 
I see someone that haven't been against that in the form of Mr. Ryan Neal. Yeah, that's a tough one in Herring's farce of that argument. I believe Charles read something he said about this in the partner's tale of the three rebels who had to kill death in the world. And look how well that was. Yes, A level English. Any other business that we want to talk about? Anything at all, Mr. Troll, sir? Before we get on the ball, Mrs. Jamie Miss Mrs. Don't get your hopes up. Anyway, as some of you may have noticed on the literiferum, there is a link to literific ties and literific scarves. The ties are going to be approximately £10 and the scarves are going to be approximately £20. Yeah. Um, if you are interested in getting either of these items, please sign up on the Google Doc that's linked on the literary room. I regret to say for Ms. Vera Lynn, there will be no literific fishnet stockings available <laughs> for That's what you think. You actually, actually reminded me though, if you want to do announcements like that. Um, Yes, UC, if anyone is interested in UCD or Earl's Fort IV, I'm speaking in my sort of prior role as <laughs> if anyone's interested in UCD or Earl's Fort IV, please talk to me or my very capable successor, Mr. Andrew Hallam. Uh, the uh, drop-out <coughs> DMP sealed right past me in the midst of exams, so if you do volunteer, uh, can't really unvolunteer. Uh, so, yeah. Do that. Um, moving swiftly onwards to the, the main dish uh, to be served this evening. Uh, this house would remain in the EU. Uh, on the Brexit side, we have people saying that the EU is sort of a uh, mother rubbership. That's not even Jeff Goldberg can save us from. On the Remain side, we have David Cameron saying that everything, if we leave the European Union, everything, everywhere, all the time will blow up and collapse. Uh, <laughs> Uh, parties being incredibly rational and uh, seeking the middle ground. That, <laughs> that being said, we'll move on to the debate. Uh, thank you very much. And stage four, uh, Prime Minister for uh, proposition, uh, hopefully Prime Minister eventually, Prime Minister Adam <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Finnamore, um, Madam President, uh, Mr. President-elect, thank you very much for inviting me this evening. I'm honoured to support the motion this evening. Ladies and gentlemen, power is more valuable than sovereignty. And membership of the European Union gives the United Kingdom great power at the cost of little sovereignty. And this was illustrated by the experiences of Mr. Damien Lewis and a bloke from Essex. Um, Damien Lewis, a.k.a. King Henry VIII, had numerous constitutional and sexual ambitions. Um, and the bloke from Essex, Cardinal Wolsey, who was the Lord Chancellor in the, in the uh, 16th century, understood that power, rather than sovereignty, was needed to achieve these, um, the, these ambitions. And in a few years, Cardinal Wolsey had made peace with Scotland, extracted rents, tribute from France, and made England, you know, a backwater, North Atlantic island, the fundamental arbiter in any European conflicts. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I'm using this example to show that the European Union is valuable for, for one reason. Ladies and gentlemen, we, the proposition, are not Eurocrats. 
I suppose, I suppose, um, um, <laughs> I, I suppose you two are, but you're, you're from Cork, and so anyway. Um, we support this motion only because, like Cardinal Wolsey, we believe membership of the European Union is the best possible trade-off the United Kingdom can achieve between giving up sovereignty and gaining power. So, first of all, power is more valuable than sovereignty. What do I mean by that? I mean, if we want, if we, the United Kingdom, and I must say um, Ireland's interests are very much annexed to the UK's uh, in this matter, if we want Europe to be more economically liberal, for example, if we want, uh, we need to make it so. Okay, we need the tools to make it so. If we want to keep uh, Russian revanchism, okay, uh, Putin pushing into the Ukraine, we, if we want to keep that at bay, we need a mechanism for keeping that so. If we want to uh, spread our cultural values, if we want Europe to be more socially liberal, okay, we need a mechanism for making that so. And I'm arguing, we today are arguing, that power is the only thing that matters uh, in, in this, and the European Union grants this to us. Okay? So, um, first of all, okay, Cormac will elaborate on this point in much greater detail, but I'm going to set up some of the facts he is going to draw on. First of all, the United Kingdom should remain in the European Union because membership grants the United Kingdom, and to a certain extent Ireland as well, diplomatic, economic, and cultural power. What do I mean by power? Let's use the example of the relationship with the United States. The United States values the United Kingdom on the UK's perceived influence. This is what I mean by uh, economic and diplomatic power. We have perceived ability to shape things because of our membership of the European Union. And let me explain that. The rest of the world perceives us as more influential when our leaders are constantly coordinating with each other um, more often in European institutions. Okay? Um, American Commonwealth and other world leaders value David Cameron okay, because he can turn up to the council and wield votes. Okay? He can wield votes and that exerts a lot of soft power. Okay? And, and all of that backs up the United Kingdom's relationship with, the, with NATO. Now, the UK is the bridge between the EU and, um, and, and NATO and the United States. This gives the United Kingdom a lot of power to achieve things we want, whether they're left wing or right wing. Secondly, the UK, and this is one which uh, Stefan will draw on, the UK should remain in the EU because these diplomatic, economic, and cultural gains come at the expense of surprisingly little sovereignty. By sovereignty, I mean legal supremacy. The, the legal supremacy to say this institution or this level of government is right to take decisions in this area. We remain sovereign for the ability to declare war. Uh, we have sovereignty of a monetary policy that is so valuable. We don't have the euro. We should be lucky for that. Okay? Uh, we have qualified majority voting in the council. Okay? Uh, we, we, may maintain, we maintain sovereignty over the majority of policy. We don't give up that much, okay, due to the efforts of uh, many, um, you know, British statesmen like uh, Mrs. Thatcher. <laughs> we get a lot for relatively little. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a good trade-off. I'd like to conclude, ladies and gentlemen, by pointing to the future of the UK and the European Union. It is possible that the UK might be the biggest economy in Europe in a number of years. If we think in terms of population, 
the dynamism of the economy, compare it to some weaknesses in France and Germany. We should be looking, like Cardinal Wolsey, to use the European Union as a form of exerting British power. Whatever we want to do, okay, if we want to make Europe more socially liberal, if we want to make ourselves wealthier, whatever we want to do, the European Union is a way of doing that. And for this reason, ladies and gentlemen, I beg you to support the motion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Pitt. And now for as leader of the opposition, uh, Sir Johnny Fennell. Oh, Powerboat by pointing out that he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I wasn't quite sure how to start tonight's speech, but you've given me, Mr. Kidd, Mr. Prime Minister, uh, a way to start. You have suggested that British power is best protected by remaining within the European Union. I'm going to begin the argument for the opposition by showing that British power is meaningless and, in fact, incompatible within the European Union. I'm not going to talk about specific policies of the European Union. The rest of the opposition will do that. I'm not going to talk about the fact that the common agricultural policy subsidises rich landowners because their industry is to be protected, but our steel industry can't be. I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to talk about the fact that only last week the European Commission instructed the Irish government that having once instigated a system of water charges, it now cannot do away with them despite overwhelming popular will for that change. I'm not going to talk about that. <laughs> what I'm going to talk about is the fact that the principles underlying the European Union are fundamentally at odds the principles that we have known in the United Kingdom and in the British Isles for centuries. Now, people have this idea about the EU that in order to understand its origin, you have to look at the post-war period. You have to look at the centuries of conflict between France and Germany. And that this was a way of finally settling that conflict. Well, I have to say that maybe in terms of the specific causal historical circumstances, meaning European integration started then and no other time, perhaps. But the logic that has propelled policymaking in the European Union, the logic that underlay the foundation of that institution, is very much older. And I want you to keep this in mind when you hear my colleagues on the opposition describing the individual policies of the European Union that are destructive and that are simply not moral. The origins, the intellectual origins of the European Union are really with the French Revolution. And the succeeding three decades of warfare in Europe when Napoleon, far from being the reactionary neo-feudalist he's so often thought of being, actually wanted to spread his enlightenment ideas of rationality and brotherhood and well, secularism. Nice. Mr. Kidd. I'm as disgusted by these enlightenment ideals as much as you are. <laughs> but why should we care when women like Mrs. Thatcher can make sure that we don't have to sign up to all of these and sell all of the family jewels when we get rebates on, you know, the, the, the tax rebates and we're outside the Schengen zone? If the reforms achieved, or the, the exclusions achieved by Mrs. Thatcher were so overwhelmingly persuasive, why are we having a referendum this year? 
Why did Mr. Cameron come back from Brussels with such pathetic reforms that mainly have to do with being mean to migrants because they allegedly want benefits, rather than challenging the underlying logic of this institution, which is that society exists in a certain utopian sense. It is rational. It is to be homogenized. Regionalism and tradition and identity and particularity are to be challenged as they were challenged under the revolutionary regime in France because they are at odds with the universalizing ethos of the project. So the fact that empirically our own British traditions of constitutional monarchy, law by precedent and negative liberty have given us not only one of the most open, tolerant societies in the world, despite the superficial things such as the House of Lords and the monarchy that appear, that would appear to challenge those principles, but also one that captivated and inspired the very continental philosophers who laid philosophical groundwork for the European or for for the French Revolution. They looked towards Britain as the origin of those ideas of freedom and equality and mixed government, balanced government that they wanted to instigate in France, but that went so disastrously wrong because these things cannot be imposed from above. And that we're now told that our rights are actually created by European treaties, that our liberties come from the European Court of Justice, and that our traditions are anachronistic throwbacks which imperil the unstoppable advance of cold, hard, soulless, faceless, bureaucratic homogenization. This is the obscene principle of the European Union and why I beg the House to oppose this motion. Friendly and the House now recognises Mr. Cormac Manning uh, for the Deputy Prime Minister position. Thank you, Mr. Madam, or whatever it is, Chairperson, Speaker, Ladies and Gentlemen. My fee tonight is for us to stay. By casting your vote, you're, by casting your vote for Remain, you would send a clear message to stay, to stay open. To struggling small business people who, have, who would have their, um, who face their enterprises being shuttered by the economic chaos of leaving the EU, your vote would be saying stay, stay open, stay in business, stay in employment. To the thousands who cross the border here every day for work, leisure, family, study, anything, your vote would be saying, stay, stay open. We are never going back to checkpoints and what would become the external border of the European Union. And to people all over the world who are watching the outcome of this vote, to our allies and to our friends in countries across the globe, your vote would be saying, we're staying. We're staying open. We're open to the world, open to cooperating with our neighbours and our friends to make our lives better than we could if we're out in the world. So my plea tonight is for us to stay. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about sovereignty, um, but before that, I guess as I haven't been here in a year or two, just to introduce myself, I am Cormac. I, I uh, I'm from Cork, some of those EU migrants. <laughs> and even worse, I originally came to Belfast, some of those dastardly Erasmus grants, um, and joined the Literific way back in the uh, 165th session. Um, and I'm back up in Belfast working, and so taking your jobs as well. <laughs> 
Because we hear a lot in this debate, um, such as from uh, the previous honorable speaker, about sovereignty and power. So I'd like to extend what my colleague Mr. Kidd has said. Let's look at sovereignty. Let's look at power. What does it actually mean? Um, how do you define sovereignty? As maybe like an ability to, to write your own laws? Yes, that's part of it. That's definitely part of it. So I think it's a little broader than that. It's the ability of us as a people to choose our identity, our destiny, and to collectively shape the sort of society we want to see. I think that's a fairly, fairly, fairly broad definition of, of sovereignty, that it, our ability collectively to, to decide how we want to be ruled and what our society is like. But the thing is, um, like it or not, in the 21st century, the people of this country have more effective power, so more sovereignty, by working together and cooperating with other countries than we would on our own. Because unfortunately, in my opinion, one of the uh, marking characteristics um, in this age of globalization is that you have large multinational companies with more power than certain states. I see nowadays in the likes of Google, Starbucks, Microsoft, etc., operating huge businesses, huge profits in the UK, paying pittances of tax um, because they're big enough to bully the state. Um, you see this with the banks. We saw this. Um, uh, we saw this in the recent financial crash. Um, where they were, they proclaimed too big to fail and forced uh, governments to uh, cough up money uh, to bail them out for their mistakes during the financial crisis. Um, you see this with all sorts of companies that effectively have the power to bully um, and help shape the rules. Um, the reason um, in a lot of these cases is that we can collectively, um, as a sovereign people, force these companies to pay their fair share of taxes into society or something like that um, is because they have this huge power in terms of wealth or they can say, well, we're going to leave. And often just the, the, the threat of saying we're going to leave this country and take our business elsewhere is enough to chill uh, these democratic controls. And One last question? Um, yes. Are you suggesting that you would like the EU to assume partial taxation? Um, I think, uh, I'll get out of that in a second. Um, I think that what the EU should do um, is it should, t it should um, have some powers of taxation and to have, uh, to have a level um, to have uh, the common consolidated tax base, so that means that you have the same accounting practices, um, which means even if different states will have different tax rates, um, it means that you have less of those loopholes. Like for example, uh, the EU has recent proposals for financial transaction tax, a very small tax on financial transactions, um, which several EU countries have, have chosen to go, but the UK has opted out. Um, we think that that would be a, a positive step um, to force um, banks, which have caused huge calamity and recession, um, in this country, it would be a huge step to force them to pay their share. We would be unable to implement that um, on our own because you have these banks able to say we're just going to move our business elsewhere, we're going to go away. You see this with the EUI cap and, ba cap and badger bonuses, another thing, which would be quite uh, a lot more difficult to operate in ourselves as one country. So basically my case tonight is that um, out as a country on our own, we would have the trappings of sovereignty, but we, would have, we wouldn't have the real sovereignty, the actual effective power to shape the society in which we live in. Um, and on top of that, also if we want to be part of the single market, like we're going to have to accept the EU rules without having a say in them or not. Um, so to conclude, I think the EU is not perfect. Um, I think that there's things that can yeah. definitely be changed. But the thing is, that's not the question on the ballot paper. The question on the ballot paper is whether we are, as a whole, better off in or out. Um, so it's not enough to just say that there are certain problems with the European Union, um, because the fact is that uh, by 
staying and we can change them. We can use our influence in this democratic union to try and shape, um, shape where we go from here and shape our lives. Um, by staying in Europe, we can change Europe. Uh, the future of a continent is open to us to write. Let's not throw away the pen. Is the deputy leader of the opposition, Mr. Craig, Dr. Craig, uh, are we in the South Bay? No. <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to address a couple of direct points by uh, Second Drop first before we get going. Now, he mentions a couple of things, that one of them being a financial transaction tax. Now, per personally, I'm against it. Okay, however, if every single country in the world was to actually be able to instigate it, it would work. Whilst you have a trading block in the EU which wants it, and every other country not having it, it is doomed to failure. So us being in the EU bears no resemblance on getting all the other countries to actually accept a financial transaction tax. Now, would it cripple our trading industry in this country in London? Probably not and if every single country had it. But until that point, it is a doomed to failure. That's the facts on that one. Secondly, in terms of do we have to have the rules in this country if we trade with the EU? Switzerland's done it. So why would we? Now, I'm not saying we should go down the Swiss model, but you've just brought up two points there, financial transactions and Swiss rules, and the rules that the EU have trading with them. They're both null and void points. Now, let's just address first prop points. He starts talking about the power versus sovereignty argument. And to me, the main thing I can pick up from that is that he wants us to be America's puppet. <laughs> Anyone disagree with that point? Now, me personally, <laughs> now, me personally, I don't think we should set our domestic and international agenda based on being America's puppet. Blair's gone, luckily, right? We don't have to go down that route anymore. We can set out our own agenda. We try to have a trade deal with China, something America are typically against doing. We do not need to have this. We do not need oh, no, to have no. We do not need to have this level of influence within the EU to keep America our chums happy. There's far better organisations of keeping peace with Russia. NATO being the main one. We're part of NATO whether we're in the EU or out of the EU. So why, if that's the main body and it was designed to, it was uh, set up. Sure. Yeah. I'd like the fact that right now it's not NATO which is supporting Ukraine, it's probably it's Russia, but it's the European Union that's doing Okay, so. thank you. Okay, so at the end of the day, Ukraine are not part are not part of NATO. Should they be part of NATO? Probably. Okay, and that's another that's a different debate for another time, what whether we should have the Ukraine within NATO. We're also part of the G8 and we're on the UN Security Council. These are far more important institutions than the EU will ever be when it comes to dealing with a problem like Russia. Now it's been talked about on this side uh, by Second Prop that uh, by being in the EU, we're actually helping small business. Now, I find this concept absolutely baffling. The, uh, the laws that are set down by the EU are set by the lobbyists that are, in, that are basically in cahoots with Volkswagen, Mercedes-Benz and BMW. It's part of the reason why, even if we leave the EU, we're still going to have trade with them because we've got such a massive trade deficit. Now, and it's, these laws, and it's these laws that are set by them that are what is crippling small business within the UK. These are the laws that you want, that, and you're trying to say, are helping small business. Oh, no, no, and they're not. 
They're the things that individually cripple the business that we have. We're still going to have trade with them. We will take £30 billion trade deficit with the EU. They, these, the EU is never going to be allowed to act in a spiteful manner towards Britain because of the amount of trade deficit that we have with it. On that point, sir. So we've got, I've been trying to come up with a way in which what's actually happening over on prop here. And to me, I'm thinking this, this is a risks versus benefit analysis. In terms of the risks of leaving, you've got security and economics. And then the risks of, the risks of leaving is security versus sovereignty. So basically, the economics arguments, if you look at them, basically balance each other out. And you're left with an argument of uh, security versus sovereignty. And that's basically, if I don't see either side tonight being able to 100% say we're going to be better off or worse off economically if we leave or stay. Okay, so if you look at the economists that have been saying, it's people coming out from JP Morgan, it's people that are coming out from Goldman and Sachs, these are the people that are on the payroll of these are the people on the payroll of the EU, these are the people that couldn't predict the banking crisis going on, these are the people that are on the payroll of the EU that couldn't predict the banking crisis that told us we should be going into the euro. At the end of the day, you've got an argument right now between economists saying yes, stay, yes, leave, and it just depends which side of the bread of the bread they're, they're getting buttered. So On your point, sir, would you agree with me that? Sorry, you're out of time. So we've got to basically weigh up this sovereignty versus security argument. Am I, am I out of time? Jeez. Oh, <laughs> 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 this speak twice tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Miller. Uh, well, welcome to the first, the first Minister Speaker of the Proposition. Uh, so, Stefan, if it's Ladies and gentlemen of the House, so far we have heard compelling arguments to remain part of a reformed European community and scandalous slander against the European Union <laughs> on the part of the opposition. And I am privileged to use my unique and partial position stemming from the fact that as an EU resident in the UK, I am sadly unable to vote in the actual referendum. I believe that I should be entitled, and it was a bit of a slight move on the part of the leave cap that we were not able, that the residents were unable to vote. But first, I will begin with some rebuttal. We will be 100% worse off in terms of trade if we leave the EU. On that point. <laughs> The founding principle of the EU, or the European Coal and Steel Community as it was known at the time, was to protect free trade and economic cooperation to an extent where war in the future would be absolutely impossible. Nowadays, the British economy would collapse immediately if we were to break relations with the EU. The Lisbon Treaty outlines the grounds in which we can leave the European Union. And what the Lisbon Treaty gives Britain is two years 
to renegotiate a trade treaty which could be vetoed by any single member of the European Union. So, realistically, that would mean that Britain would use Gibraltar. Gibraltar would be gone. And what if Slovenia would decide that we will veto any trade with Britain unless we get free movement of people? Slovenia doesn't have much trade with Britain and gains greatly by the free movement of people. They would be able to bully Britain into making any concessions they could possibly dream of. And please. We should stay in the EU because you're worried about Slovenia bullying us. Yes. Exactly. That is the European Union. If you left, you would have no chance of any trade. The border would be closed tight shut unless you crawled on your knees to Slovenia and made any concessions that they could possibly ask for. And second point, the European Union specified us the Lisbon Treaty, and that was a point which was specifically demanded to be clarified by the Polish government. It says that European law is secondary to national law. Therefore, no European court can ever overturn the decision of a national court. And the third point is that the privilege of the common market gives us huge global power in terms of the simple EC mark. The EC mark means that your product can be sold in the European Union. And what that means is that millions of workers throughout the entire world are protected by European legislation. Countries everywhere in the world have to conform to the safety standards of the European Union saving millions of lives and, of course, improving the quality of life for the workers concerned. And that is something that would be impossible to implement in a fragmented European Union. Please. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so I would urge you all to vote for peace that the founders of the European Union wanted. To vote for freedom that the European Union is fighting for for the post-Soviet states, that would rather be European, European than Russian. A vote for our continental neighbors and allies and the continual support on the world stage will give great power to the UK to improve not only the UK but the world as a whole. But don't take my word for it. Following my speech, we will have some light-hearted <laughs> summation of our arguments by Mr. Phil Barrow. <laughs> <laughs> but first, I would like to introduce Mr. Anderson and his dystopian vision of the Hey, Mr. Urbanski, the House of Welcomes, uh, Mr. Anderson, to take up the Minister role for the Opposition. Inuit, inuit, Schlegelolofen. I want to start by uh, maybe coming back to the, the Prime Minister um, of the Opposition. Um, what he said was about Cardinal Wolsey. And that was a really good illustration. Because Cardinal Wolsey was a good analogy. Because people in Europe in the 16th century 
didn't really value democracy either. <laughs> so I thank, I thank him for that illustration. So this is the real issue. The real issue is not about the economy. It's more basic than that. It's more fundamental than that. It's about your rights to determine your destiny. It is not about the economy per se. What do you really know? What do you really know about what's going on within the heart of the EU? And I'm not just talking about the structures that are very clear and set out in the treaties, but I'm also talking about the culture. The culture of different uh, bureaucrats who, tell, who, behind the scenes, do deals that determine your destiny. What do you really know? I'm happy for you to know. Because as a Brexiter, all I want you to know is the truth. Because I know that will bring you to our side. <laughs> we have to mask the powers behind edicts, the dirty deals, the system that brings the worst of the left and the right together, but neither of their benefits. I want you to know the truth. I want you to be informed. Because I said, as I said, it will bring you to our side. So what is my thesis? The European Union is not a democratic organization. It is not a democratic organization. It is a, bureau, it is a bureaucratic organization with democratic appendage. Too influenced by special interest groups and big business. And he is right. I, I must say it is, it is good to see that he, he raised the issue of business. Because it is not small businesses that are coming out of the CBI. It is big business. Because big business has a big interest in the EU. Because it dictates policy. It, by the, um, with the DGs and with the Commission, goes behind the scenes and um, negotiates things on its behalf, not our behalf, not the people, but on the issue of business. Of the bodies that comprise the EU as well, must be remembered, the weakest is the Parliament. Although recent treaties have, have, been, um, have increased and beefed up their powers, compared to the Council or per, compared to the Commission, it is a lion on a leash. Is this not a very good thing? If we want to maximise sovereignty and democratic accountability, we want the most power to be with Mr Cameron when he goes off to the Council. That is where a lot of the power is concentrated and where we can actually make the European Union much more democratic in the future. Thank you very much for that point, because I was going to come on to that. Parliament is not the same status of its national ancestors. For, um, for sovereignty purposes, that's a good thing. But national parliaments don't make those decisions either. It's made by unelected, undemocratic mandarins. And the Commission, whenever you look at it, it is the initiator of legislation. It's a powerful monolith. It acts as the executive. It acts as the civil service. It acts as the government. But without an opposition, and of course we talked about this in Stormont, we said, how bad is Stormont because it doesn't have an opposition. And it's a great thing that it has an opposition. This, the EU doesn't even have a government, never mind an opposition. So how can it be democratic? It is a powerful agenda setter. It is the writer of legislation. It is, and it is the one with the institutional memory. It dictates largely and gets its way largely. The council as well, through corporate, many decisions are made without ministerial approval at the lower levels. It's a greater desire, and the greater desire to conform rather than get what's, what's in the best interest of the people. It's consensus, it is um, because of consensus. The sociological pressure on those who are involved in the council um, is huge. 
and the chicanery. Chicanery, sorry. The double play outside um, when national governments go and say, we're doing this in your best interest. But then when it goes to the council, they don't act in the best interest of the people because it's not recorded. A lot of the decisions aren't recorded. But I, I come down to another point. The core, um, the EU lacks, um, the logic of integration extends into more and more areas of um, the EU. It has to, because if you're, um, if you're um, working together in one area, the logic is, well, there's a lot of these other areas that need, to, need to be compromised on as well. There's no appetite for reform. The influence of big business, it's massive. The Commission ignores the people's voice. There, according to the Treaty, according to the Treaty um, of Lisbon, there is an opportunity for a petition, if, um, once it reaches about 2 million people, that it can, it can invoke the people's decision. Um, and you know a review of legislation. However, we have in 2015, such a decision was made. 3.3 million signatures to stop the proposed EU trade with the US, but yet the Commission ignored that. The EU is so bad. No other organisation has followed it. I thank you. <laughs> Anderson, the House now recognises the uh, Government Chief Whip, Councillor Finbar Rogers. Don't do that, it's just a chairman. Ladies and gentlemen, firstly, I'd like Finley's use of the phrase bar steel in this particular work. Location in mind Northern Ireland is obviously the, indus the industrial powerhouse it always was, <laughs> as is Scotland and Wales. If you've ever been to the glens of Aberystwyth, you can't move for small. <laughs> uh, now, here are some words that hopefully I will never use again. In defence of David Cameron, <laughs> the deal that he struck with Europe was that he's built on the groundwork of Thatcher. Oh, I'm even defending Thatcher now. Uh, <laughs> Was set at the sign, um, which uh, renewed, renewed the assurance that we wouldn't join the euro and also renewed Britain's place as with Europe but not entirely caught. Uh, in rebuttal to Mr. Miller, uh, you're worried about Britain staying the EU being America's puppet. If Britain turns away from Europe, who do you think it will move towards? <laughs> I would remind you that the reason why. France vetoed the first two applications of Britain to join the economic community was to prevent the EEC being drowned in the Atlantic, to quote Charles de Gaulle. Uh, and as you conceded, our economy is integrally linked to Europe. Why would we make that any, uh, any more difficult for ourselves? You see, every year, every so often, ladies and gentlemen, we get the chance of a once-in-a-lifetime chance to vote on our membership of the EU. Presumably it's once in a lifetime because due to mismanagement of the NHS, <laughs> the outcome is now 48. Britain's always had this slightly awkward partnership role within Europe. Its role in the continent is somewhat like Don Quixote. Uh, a tired old man with delusions of grandeur backed up by private income 
And this illusion was brought about by reading fairy tales and articles by Peter Hitchens <laughs> in the Daily Mail. Uh, On that point, sir. A lot of them. Uh, are you going to defend Peter Hitchens or the Daily Mail fairy tales? Some point of information he might from me on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Along the way, coming peasant folk try to persuade the Don uh, and steer him towards sanity, but ultimately he's killed uh, by the realisation of his own decline. I mentioned this, that pretty much everything I've seen from the Leave campaign has either been very limited speculation or pure imagination of the kind, whether you want to even dream of a company. Um, and I noticed that the other didn't have, by and large, veered away from constructing some kind of solid imagining of what life outside the EU would be. Okay. Is that possibly because we don't know? Point <laughs> um, Okay, go on. That's the problem with democracy, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how... Ah... <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to come to that in the pub. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Farrell. Uh, there's one campaign that I actually I saw that served every sentence with the word imagine, and what uh, I can only imagine is Boris Johnson not really paying attention. The last time John Lennon started playing on David Cameron's headphones, um, they mentioned how uh, 350 million pounds uh, out of our budget is take is given to the EU. Imagine what we could do with that kind of money, ladies and gentlemen. Regardless of the fact that a third of that actually stays in Britain because of the rebate negotiated by Thatcher. And we haven't uh, said this. <laughs> no, the Leave campaign has. We won't. No, back and forth. And at the time when our government is held bent on austerity, do you really think they're likely to spend any new money on nice projects? Um, the practicalities of leaving the EU have effectively been utterly ignored. Uh, the, the truth is, in the long term, it's unlikely to make that much difference. We're still going to be part of the European continent and our economies are still going to be inherently tied together. Um, the UK is still the sixth largest economy in the world and usually ranks up among the top third of countries for, in terms of soft power. Top third of countries in terms of soft power, which is the ability to persuade um, countries to, uh, to take a certain path. Um, and that is unlikely, and that's unlikely to change. Uh, however, in the, short, in the short term, there are a number of practical risks. For example, the uncertainty that's created um, from taking su such a large, large economic uh, change uh, such as overturning a 30-year status quo. And secondly, from the uh, standpoint of where we are at the moment, no one has been able to answer me on the, what would happen to the border. Uh, not only would Northern Ireland lose millions of pounds of peace money, but uh, it, um, which would obviously not be replicated by Westminster, because most people in Westminster don't recognise it still exists. Um, but no one actually knows what would happen. What happened there for most of the 20th century was a fortified border. Uh, actually, I did, actually enforced by the Republic of Ireland, regardless of the fact that they didn't technically recognise it. And no one knows that that would continue. I can hear you. 
interesting arguments from my preceding speakers. We have heard how the principles which form the basis of the EU are fundamentally different to those which define this great nation, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. We have heard how the logic which surrounds every single decision made derives from Napoleonic times and are, is truly unfit for the modern UK. We've see, seen how the, the intrinsic idea is one of homogenization and the squashing of differences. And we've seen that this is our chance to act not as the US's puppet and to fight for our own future and democracy. And we have seen how the EU as an organisation is fundamentally undemocratic and it seems apparently unreformable. But the truth is that I don't really care about any of that, <laughs> nor do I even really agree with it. Really, I agree with the third proposition speech that really it's just scandalous propaganda against the EU. You see, I love the EU. <laughs> and I believe that we should leave the EU because the EU would be better without us. <laughs> From what we have seen in the referendum debate thus far and the levels of vehemence surrounding the EU, that the continued presence of the UK is undoubtedly a toxic influence on the EU. <laughs> Which will potentially lead to its demise. And so I believe we must extricate ourselves from the EU to save it. <laughs> we must take the pain of the diminished presence in the world Damage to our own personal finances, a hardening of the border, and devolving into an economic and intellectual backwater to ensure the continued survival of the EU. <laughs> this is a sacrifice that I believe is our moral duty to make. Calling upon the spirit 
of the Battle of Britain, we who must protect the masses of Europe. And it seemed, apparently it won't be that bad, according to my preceding speakers. So, you know, maybe we won't completely crash and burn. <laughs> you see, I haven't much more left to say. That was that. Yes. Could the European Union survive the humiliation of having the world's sixth or fifth largest economy leaving it and the, the spurning of the great vision? You see, I think you have a higher regard for the UK than I do. <laughs> I, I truly believe that they could. And eventually, perhaps one day, and we've seen the error of our we may perhaps rejoin with a new desire in our heart for an ever closer union. <laughs> to keep it short, <laughs> when you love the EU and love something as I do, and sometimes for it to flourish, you must let it. <laughs> I thank you very much. Wrapped to that wonderfully alternative take that could be rivaling on backbench Corbin style. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll now take uh, three rounds of questions from the floor. Proposition uh, abstention type points um, uh, to the proposition as well. Uh, and then uh, we'll get to Professor Infinimore to sum up the uh, So, does anyone have any questions for the proposition to begin with? Uh, Mr. Robert Burton. Uh, yes, it's more a question, um, I think. Either cancer will address it to the, to the proposition uh, for the purposes of, uh, of this debate. Um, a lot was spoken about uh, in this debate in terms of um, the undemocratic nature of, of the EU, and then also then was talked about how you know we really need the EU. It's good for business. Um, it's good for a lot of different reasons. Um, but my question is, I mean, to be honest, uh, the debate was not very substantial. Um, I think. We could have maybe read more in the sun, and um, not heard here um, tonight. Uh, but my question—I came here because I'm an undecided. I'm undecided, leaning towards towards out. Uh, and the question that I want answered, and I have very little hope that it will. Um, but my question is: the EU, as everyone has agreed, is an imperfect um, kind of union. It's, it's not perfect. Uh, it is, in a lot of respects, undemocratic. EU commissioners are not elected. So my question is, is the EU reformable? Can it be, not Cameron's kind of reforms, not these reforms that nobody really knows what they are, nobody really cares about, sorry. But my question is, can it genuinely be reformed? Can it be reformed to be democratic, to be accountable, and to be a European Union that can work for, uh, for ordinary people? Well, it has. I would draw your attention to what the European Commission described as the biggest threat to the European Union, which is the Visegrad Group, the V4, which comprises of Slovakia, Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. And together they vote, they hold a greater vote than Germany. They are unanimous in their decisions, and they have three votes of veto. 
And they, I would see them as a driving force behind any reform. They are countries which have a single purpose. They, the president of the Visegrad group, who is the Czech president at the time, will speak on behalf, on any European Council meetings, will speak on the behalf of three other countries. So, in effect, he will be the most powerful man in the European Council And he will push through all the reforms that are necessary. The Visegrad group is really at locked horns with the European Commission over the migrant crisis and many other issues. They are what keeps the European Commission in check, and they are the ones that will from the European Union. Anybody like to from the opposition like to respond to that? Well, there's 27 countries in the EU, not four. And to rely on four members of the Council is by many, um, in the hope of reform, is, is um, nonsense. Uh, I'm sorry to say. But it, the, the fact is, there is no appetite for, for reform at the minute with regards to the dem democratic deficit. There may be appetite for reform with regards to the migrant crisis, I grant you, but that's because it's a crisis that is facing the EU um, now. But actually, whenever you look at um, whenever you look at the EU, any reforms that is made has always been reactive. It's never been proactive to reform. Um, so whenever you much like the British government, over the past two hundred years. At the EU wasn't over the past 200 years, it was 40 years. No, but Britain was. So, but, but, but what I will say is, it, the, point, the point of the matter is, is whether or not it can be reformed. I don't, um, there has been no appetite for reform. The, the, the UK Prime Minister tried to bring in reforms, and they, well, the response really of the, the Commission and the response of the, the wider EU was actually just like, well, why are you, why are you bringing this forward? Why are you bringing um, these forward, these reforms? Because essentially, at the minute, we're dealing with other issues like um, the migrant, the migrant crisis. Our opportunity to, um, our, our opportunity to really influence and change the EU has been limited quite considerably because of the increase um, of qualified majority voting as well. So, the, the fact that even four four members, which have you know, four countries which have a huge population, they in and of themselves cannot bring forward the reforms. They can still be out of the qualified majority voting as well. So I just don't see how there can be reform. And for that reason, that's why I'm out. Because genuinely, if, if I felt that there could be reform, I would actually stay with them. That's your answer, Sue. Uh, I'm afraid we can't take any responses from the conversation. If anyone would like to now ask a question of the opposition, I see your hand shoot right up there, sir. Um, to the opposition, does your last speaker make a, a good point that if we want Britain to be on the fringe of the United States of Europe, the quickest way to achieve that is to remove ourselves from the table and remove the single largest bloc to the United States of Europe from the EU? Uh, I'm just trying to get I don't want the United States of Europe, and I think the best way to avoid it is to keep a veto at the table. Well, it's not because there are people in Brussels who want Britain to leave, because then they can. Well, what I would say, what I would say to the, the honourable gentleman, who doesn't go tax. I know the air, excuse me, I'm not. I think genuinely the, the problem, the problem is 
United Kingdom, United Kingdom needs to remove its, its extricate itself to um, ultimately we cannot respond to this. Even, even that whole idea of veto, it, it won't make a difference because the pressure from France, the pressure from integration, it will still actually push forward the United States of Europe. It will just leave Britain as a second class member, which is not really integrated within the United States of Europe. Because um, Stratford came out of um, their strategic um, policy uh, uh, agency, and what they realized is there's going to be four types of um, Europe. There is the block that you've mentioned, Southern Europe. There's going to be Western Europe. There's going to be Scandinavia. And then there's going to be the United Kingdom. You know, so there's going to be these four, four blocks. The reality is, Britain still is going to be left behind anyway within all of those. It's going to ask for offloads from, from all of those But with regards to democracy, the, the intrinsic change that, that needs to happen with the Commission, it will not happen and that will not um, in Britain actually. Whether it says it or not, it's not going to change that. Thank you for that, Mr. Anderson. Uh, would anyone from the proposition like to take up that point? Or shall we start? I'd like to take up your last point, which is that. Uh, any reform coming from the EU being reactionary. That is the nature of all successful reforms, uh, including the Reform Act of 1968, 1966, and 1918, and 1928, and to some extent the Good Friday Agreement. Any successful measure was all done by the British government in reaction to some societal change. Uh, and in terms of Britain, uh, in the EU, uh, it is true that uh, since 1999, Britain has been outvoted quite a few times, uh, and has been pushed and has been pushed to the fringes of the European project. But that is, but the exact number is only 56. The vast majority of times, it has been working with Europe and within Europe to reform it, um, which is which is entirely plausible. Uh, whether that comes about proactively or reactionally. I don't really think that matters. Thank you very much, Mr. Rogers. Uh, does anyone have any uh, abstention points? I think they kind of wish they've got more of from the motion or anything on the motion. Uh, I'll go for Mr. Ryan the yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Uh, okay, so we've touched on this uh, a little bit in both sides, but I think um, the whole idea of modern Ireland. Okay, so we've talked about the UK, and it's the fifth most wealthiest uh, economy in the Sixth. Fifth. <laughs> <laughs> That's true, but there's a huge disparity of wealth within the United Kingdom. Fucking sick! Most of which is held in the southern But the point I want to make is that, at least, uh, I would be more Brexit, I'm too nice, I'd be more Brexit for the UK, me and UK. But as for Northern Ireland, I'd be very much for me. And the reason for that is quite simple. For the societal impacts that we have, because many of the concepts of the Good Friday Agreement such as dual citizenship, such as freedom of trade and all the rest of that. So, actually, are on the foundation of the, United, uh, the European Union. So, what becomes the Good Friday Agreement? What becomes of dual nationality? What becomes of the hardened border of bounce on the border? We rely on cross trade. What becomes of those? And I think those effects are being possibly disastrous. Although, if you are from a more extreme nationalist perspective, I suppose it would be quite positive because it makes Northern Ireland unviable in many ways. So, I guess from that perspective, but I can't see, if you're a Northern Irish Unionist, how you would be a Brexit. But you have to defend Brexit. <laughs> um, would the proposition like to respond to that first? 
Okay, very well. So we, we presented this in terms of a, uh, a sovereignty power trade-off. You give up a wee bit of sovereignty, you get a lot of power, economic, cultural, social power in return. Northern Ireland's a fascinating case because uh, the Northern Ireland has two political traditions relating to sovereignty, parliamentary sovereignty, one which is viscerally pro-parliamentary sovereignty, the unionist side, and the, the other which is viscerally anti-sovereignty, the nationalist side. Um, both of them, however, both, both communities gain a great deal in, in outcomes. I'm talking about physical outcomes uh, from the European Union. You can get the border, okay? You, you know, my, I can go on holiday and go cycling from Monaghan to Fermanagh. Wait, is there even a border? Calvin to Fermanagh, and, and I, I don't notice it, you know, I'm, I'm too drunk. Uh, okay? Uh, um, uh, you, you know, there's so much, so much investment, uh, you know, European investment has been on infrastructure here. Um, it's, it's fantastic being able to, uh, you know, trade so easily between the two countries. The reduction of barriers, all of that has benefited people in Northern Ireland immeasurably, regardless of what they gain to lose. And for the nationalists, you're not, you're not losing anything because you, you you want to get rid of parliamentary sovereignty. You want to you know, get a bit of Dublin. Can we? It's a different sovereignty, it would be part of the EU. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, All right, yeah, that's true, that's true. I'm, but yeah, it's, okay, true. I accept that, yeah. Anyone from the opposition would like to respond to that at all? Um, so, but the point on, on Northern Ireland, you talk about the financial uh, subsidies, effectively, is what they are, that we receive from the EU. So, has basically allowed Northern Ireland to become uh, a welfare slave. Um, without, you know, we lost our, our competitive productive industries. Um, we haven't brought any more in, and could that possibly have something to do with the fact that we sort of don't need to because we're subsidising unproductive agriculture instead of other manufacturers that could actually work? But you know, that's a pan-European policy, so you have to subsidise agriculture. You uh, didn't mention the poker. Which I'm glad you didn't, because it's really quite silly. As as you may have noticed, there are 65 million people minute. in the UK. Only just under two million of those are in Northern Ireland. Basically, the Westminster Mandarins are right. Northern Ireland doesn't matter. <laughs> and even even if they are going to spend any time on the border, they will simply say. You have to show your passport if you're going from NI to DP, as most people already think you do have to. They have to show photo ID, but most people think you have to show your passport. You don't have to show your passport. You don't have to show your passport. You don't have to show your passport. You you live five minutes from the border to Mr. Fenley, finish up your response. So, so basically, basically, Northern Ar or the United government wouldn't care if Northern Ireland became the welfare magnet for the rest of Europe, so long as GB didn't have to vote. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Fenley. Uh, just before I ask the next question, you sort of love the person who was pointed out not wearing a tie. Uh, what's your name just for the purposes of the minutes? Oh, <laughs> 
Sorry? David Cather. David Cather, thank you very much. Uh, so, another proposition question. If anyone has a question for the proposition, you, sir. Uh, if you could just state your name for the minute. Yeah, Peter Gray. Um, I was just, um, just going to ask the, the proposition that the European Union has a record of basically making a it's basically making a constant score again if they don't give if they don't give the referendum referendum results they want. And I know uh, second speaker, sorry, I forgot your name, but being from Cork, you'll know fine well that if you vote no, you'll keep on voting until you vote yes. So only the first And it was shown, I think, the Lisbon Treaty and Lisbon Treaty in 2008, that I think Stefan held up as supporting the European people. But on more. Uh, I'm more serious, yeah, well, going back to the point, how many times are we going to have to vote if we vote out until we eventually leave the European Union? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yes, so, um, yeah, so it wasn't just this and made to vote twice on um, his niece of it. Um, so, yeah, now I would say I was too young to vote in, in either of those, but um, I probably would have voted uh, yes to Lisbon the first time. When it came to the second, I don't know, because um, I think it was that's a good idea, but I also respect, like I said there about sovereignty, that it, it is my opinion that whatever the outcome of the referendum, um, if there's a clear outcome for either side, that that should be respected. Um, as it happens, like if we're about referendums, like we get more referendums if we vote the because we're going to have another referendum in Scotland and who knows what's going to happen here. Um, and uh, just on a kind of wider thing about, the, I suppose, the EU and democracy, um, kind of like what you were saying earlier. Um, the EU um, obviously isn't perfect, but if you look at, say, like Westminster, where you have, for example, in European Union elections, by law, that we proportional representation and you have to have roughly equal numbers of seats compared to votes. Whereas at the moment, we have um, something like 30% of the vote giving us 100% of the ministers um, in Westminster and the really, really unbalanced first class the vote system for people in like most of like 500 of the 650 seats, their votes number to count. Um, so I think that um, that we wouldn't be um, that if we withdrew from the EU, we wouldn't be going to a purely uh, a purely democratic system either. Because I think there's a huge democratic deficit in Westminster that um, often I think gets overlooked in the state. Sorry, can I just say this? Stefan, there's no back and forth. If you like, fine, fine. Yeah, definitely for you. But Stefan said about the the this one treaty, and I think he said that national laws were always going to be ahead of of basically European law, which is kind of quite interesting considering that it was rejected by the people of Ireland, and yet they had yet they had the Canadian previous treaty was rejected by the people of France the constitution. So I I feel to see how the two. Well, one of the rules of democracy would be that if you want to give people a voice, you need to also give them information. And in the case of Ireland, why democracy is bad. <laughs> Thank you, Fenmore. That's quite accurate, but not for the purposes of this. We have a representative of democracy. In the first case of the Lisbon Treaty, there was a pretty clear opposition saying that tax would go up if the treaty was ratified, which of course made people scared and it had no grounds whatsoever. So whenever the second round came of, the, of voting, the second round of the referendum on the Lisbon Treaty came, and that point wasn't raised anymore. The people were not being disinformed on purpose, they were given clear information, they actually voted for it.
else for that. Um, spots from the opposition? Well, I think the first, the first thing I would say is that's not exactly the tr um, that's not exactly correct because uh, the, the the president um, of the commission, Barroso, um, actually was going to drive it through even despite Irish opposition. It wasn't until another country, actually another nation said that we have a problem with this treaty, actually then did the, um, the, the first treaty go get in the water. Then what was happening happen was there was a few cosmetic changes to the, to the original document and it was driven through. So changing the name of the, the, um, the foreign minister to the high representative, but having all the powers of the foreign minister, a few cosmetic changes. The pro it comes back to the fundamental problem. The EU doesn't respect um, the people's voice. It is mentioned that there's a democratic deficit in Westminster. Well, the interesting thing was there was a referendum held on the first past the post issue. The people at the referendum said they, they, they didn't want the amended system, which was the AB. They wanted the first past the post. Like, and that was respected. That is something that we don't get you do not get that respect. And I suppose I would just like to bring on that because we're talking about Ireland as well. That whole interplay between Ireland and Northern Ireland sovereignty is a very important one. And actually what I would say is Northern Ireland, I, I would just slightly disagree with my, <laughs> sorry, my, my uh, Northern Ireland does matter. But what I would say is a lot of those things on the border can be dealt with. Um, they can be dealt with because a lot of those agreements happened before the EU, before the Ireland joined the EU, before the UK joined the EU. So the border issue can be solved. And I think there, there needs to be, uh, there does need to be discussions around that, but that can be negotiated in the exit package as well. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I'm painfully aware of time, so I'll come to the end and say this is the last question. And uh, instead of an abstention question, it can be a question of proposition, opposition, or a, a general abstention point, point on the motion. <coughs> we also have to have closing uh, remarks and uh, uh, vote at some point in the next 20 minutes. So, uh, anyone has? Yes. Any? yes. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go chairs. Oh. <laughs> um, so we had a lot of big talk about geopolitics, economy, democratic process, sovereignty, and so on. But you know, I want to raise a point about something that's very important to me, and that is the right of workers. Workers have actually benefited greatly from being in the EU, and we we in the UK already work much like much longer hours than our compatriots in the continent. We also are see that uh, level of work growing over the past few years. And in general, employment seems to be a growth towards a more American model. And I see the only opportunity to fight this being staying part of Europe and see, because the way they do things on the continent is very different. And I believe pressure from the, being within the EU will uh, come to bear on this. We already saw that quite recently with the bringing of uh, the more positive uh, paternity leave. And this extends outside of workers' rights to things like rental controls and trying to push for the rights of tenants. I, I just simply don't trust current and future British governments with the rights of like, everyday people when it comes to the workplace and things that matter in their lives, such as housing, work, and so on. So I would like to see what you can say about that. Okay, so um, you, you have a, a left-wing agenda. You want more workers' rights, you'd like more price controls, helping the, um, 
you know, helping people um, deal with a lot of problems facing them. I, I have a more right-wing agenda. I'd like to see you know, emphasis on growth, um, free market. We can both agree on the fact that the European Union is good for achieving our aims. It gives us power through which we can exercise um, exercise our, our agendas. Okay, like Cardinal Wolsey gives us a, a forum where we can turn up and bring all European leaders together and negotiate. Uh, we actually have formal rules for doing that. To you know, it, it makes it makes it more certain. It makes the negotiating a bit more certain. I, I disagree with your lack of faith in in Westminster. I, I would I would hope. I would hope that uh, the way we achieve our outcomes is for, if, if you want left-wing outcomes, you know, vote, vote for a left-wing government which goes to Brussels and sorts things out. But I, I, I accept your point, however, that we can achieve our outcomes in more roundabout ways with the European Union being the starting point for policy. I, I, I do agree with that, and thank you for supporting the motion. <laughs> I think the biggest workers' right we've got in the UK right now is the minimum wage, which isn't an EU policy. So in terms of what we actually get from the EU, we, get, we don't get that. And that's probably, if you speak to most workers, they want to get money in their pocket, and they get more with a minimum wage. Uh, I think in terms of actually rent controls, I think, I think you're sort of falling onto our side of the argument here, where the fact is if you go and live in certain places in central London, the rent prices are increasing exponentially because of the lack of land to build houses for the amount of people that are living there. So unless you can get people to migrate up to areas where there aren't as many people, you're not going to be able to get this rent issue under control whilst you have this mass movement of people to central London. I think if you, hold on, I think if you then look at workers' rights directly, that I think is what you're referring to, the first country out of Europe that introduced workers' rights was the UK maternity leave in the 1970s. So we did that outside the European framework. And just because we then joined it and they took that agenda forward doesn't mean we need to be in it to carry on what was our agenda initially. Uh, hold on. Why should we leave? I don't think workers' rights are a reason to stay. I think there's plenty of reasons to leave. But in terms of workers' rights, I would personally, I'm probably going to lose a lot of the room here, love to get rid of most of them. But, but I do not believe you can possibly put that into a manifesto and win an election. So it's not going to happen. Okay, so you cannot win an election by going, I'm going to get rid of maternity leave, I'm going to get rid of maximum hours, I'm going to get rid of this, I'm going to get rid of that. You're not going to get a vote. So I know you don't have trust in the government, but the government wants to get your vote. So they're not going to start instigating things like that on the far-right agenda-ish that... <laughs> because they know they're never going to get voted in. Why should we leave? There's so many reasons. This is not one of the reasons to stay. Uh, thank you very much for that, uh, Dr. Uh, we'll move to closing remarks by our special guest, uh, Dr. Peter uh, Thing. Thank you ever so much for inviting me. Thank you very much also for 
holding what is a, a very welcome um, debate on obviously a highly topical and very important issue. Um, I think it's fair to say it's been a refreshing, entertaining, generally honest <laughs> debate, certainly when compared to some of those we might have seen on TV uh, in recent days and weeks. I think we've heard a variety of arguments both for Remain and for Leave, and arguments which go well beyond the ability of a number of the campaigners generally to understand. <laughs> I think it's been welcome discussions about diplomatic, economic, cultural power, arguments about principles of homogenisation. I don't think anybody else so far has really invoked Cardinal Wolseley as much as I've heard Mr. this debate. <laughs> <laughs> um, I see Napoleon got a mention, Thatcher did. Um, I wonder where else we we're going to be going. <laughs> anyway, um, thank you for all the participants there for their contributions. We've heard arguments with a degree of passion. We've heard various considered opinions, various informed opinions. We've had knowledge, we've had understanding. All was going very well until about 17 minutes when I first picked up a degree of misinformation, disinformation, the occasional thing slotted in which I found slightly inaccurate. I did learn a few things which I've never heard about the EU before. I will go away and check for their veracity. Um, we also had a fair amount of emotion. Uh, we had, I think for the first time, in the debate, a declaration of love for the EU. <laughs> the call for sacrifice. Um, you are not alone. There are a few others I've heard make a similar point. Um, which was entertaining, to say the least. Um, whether it's honest or not, I don't know. It was entertaining. We've had a lot of questions posed. Um, and I commend you for raising them. Um, I think some of the audience participated with additional questions about Northern Ireland, which we need answered. Whether the EU is indeed reformable in its current state, whether it's actually reformable with the British in, um, is another question. There are a lot of things which I think are gradually coming through about what rights there are, the issue of what rights there would be for workers. We didn't touch much about funding. We didn't talk much about access to markets. Um, we didn't talk too much about what the alternative would be and how quickly that might be achieved whether that would be painless or painful. Um, I think it goes back to the initial point which a lot of people made, that there's a lot of unknowns about this. Um, we've had some answers here today. We've laughed, it's been entertaining, um, it's been enjoyable as I say, it's been a very welcome debate, but I think one thing we can't get away from, in fact, from is the fact that it's real. That this is, unlike many debates which happen in societies like this, a real one. We're there to decide in what two, two weeks in a day. Um, I suppose my parting remark is keep debating. <laughs> this is serious. This is a once in a generation. Well, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Just as you might have to vote again and again until you say yes, we may be invited by the Leave campaign to vote again and again for Leave if there is a Remain vote. I can't see remain advocates, oh, sorry, leave advocates going away if there is a vote to remain. So, thank you for the debate. I found it informative. I hope you have. Keep the debate going, as I say, and please, 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 vote.
so much. Thanks so much. <laughs> very much. Uh, thanks a bit for coming along this evening. Thank uh, you very much, very much for you closing remarks there. Uh, I think we'll move to a vote at this point. Uh, if anyone who has the membership cards, would they please get them ready? Uh, would there sooner be each allowed cards to do? Uh, wave very vehemently or something to. Yeah, that, that'll do. That'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, anyone who is in favour of remaining within the European Union, please raise your hand. In your own personal opinion. Aye. 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 Oh wait, saying oh, this is yeah. Uh, a point of clarity, Mr. President, within the European Union. Wait, wait. A point of clarification, Mr. President. This is one's own personal opinion. This is because a personal before the debate happened. Uh, before the debate happened, sorry, yes. Yeah. It's your food. So prior to the debate, just making sure everyone else understands. Yeah, that's what they all say. Yeah, one two, three, Democrat. Democrat. I can't And if you were for leaving the European Union before the debate, this is using the perfect tense. If you no, no, no. <laughs> against remaining in the European, it just feels weird to say it. Yeah, uh, before the debate, I have to Five, I can uh, Yeah, and anyone who did not have an opinion before this debate, if you could say met or boff to that, is the first You thing. would. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one, two, two, three. 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 And then we'll move to the personal opinion after the debate. So, no, it's just the one that goes bigger. Yeah. Speak up Okay, so who spoke best tonight, in your opinion, if you thought proposition spoke best? Please raise your hand. Equally good or equally well. Aye. Wait a minute. Is this, yeah. a, this is a binding vote, Mr. President, sir. <laughs> this is the one that appears in the minutes. <laughs> we're we're on to that, so speak of the Resign. Don't sit the law. <laughs> If you think the proposition spoke best tonight, please raise your hand and say aye. Aye. Thank you. And if you think the opposition spoke best tonight, please raise your hand and say nay. Who's abstaining here? Low key. And if you continue to abstain on the motion uh, in terms of uh, general speakers, I don't think they spoke equally well or equally terribly, uh, please say nah and raise your hand. Not to offend you, Tara.